This is Mornings with Simi. Some wacky weather stuff that's going on out there. And I don't mean the fact that it's rained for most of June here that we've had. I know. I know it's a cliche. I'm going to say it that we've had that January that people were also complaining about last year. This week, elsewhere, check this out. The Earth actually witnessed the hottest temperature ever recorded in the Arctic. It was 38 degrees Celsius. That's 18 degrees Celsius above the average temperature for June. So how remarkable is this? What's going on? Well, joining us now is CBS meteorologist Jeff Berardelli. Jeff, thanks so much for being here. Uh, glad to be here. Okay, so is this just like a one-off? Has this ever happened before? Well, actually, uh, temperatures in the Arctic, so right near the edge of the Arctic Circle, have twice in recorded history gotten to or very, very, very near 100 degrees. One of those places was Fort Yukon in, uh, in Alaska back in 1915. Um, it wasn't quite as hot as this. I think it got to actually exactly 100 degrees Fahrenheit um, at Fort Yukon, whereas this time it got to 100.4. So this should be officially the, the record now, the new record uh, for the Arctic. With all that said, these heat waves that have been happening in Siberia and parts of Canada and Alaska as well, uh, around the Arctic Circle have been becoming a lot more common over the past five years or so. Uh, and, and it's really astonishing to see. Our computer models back in the 1980s and 90s were predicting that they were kind of simple, simplistic mm. computer models, kind of the beginning of climate science. They were predicting that the Arctic would warm up faster. And I remember thinking to myself, well, if the Arctic does what these models say it's going to do, we'll have you know, proof for sure that climate change is impacting um, the Earth. And what we're seeing right now is beyond what we even expected to see in terms of the amount of heat. And this, this Arctic heat wave, by the way, that's happening right now that pushed the temperature over 100 degrees in Siberia has actually been generally stationary. It's moved back and forth across uh, Siberia, but it's been generally there for about five months. Temperatures have averaged around 10 degrees Fahrenheit plus above normal across that area over the course of five months. So it's not like, you know, temperatures were 10 degrees above normal for a few days or a few weeks, but this has been five months now. So it's quite extraordinary, I would say. Um, and, wow. and most people, I'm sure, just about all people in the meteorology and climate community agree. Now, what is the deal as well with this? The, the nickname is the Godzilla dust cloud that is traveling from the Sahara Desert. And it seems like right. it's actually moving towards the U.S. now. Yeah, so this, and I worked in Florida for about 20 years of my career. Uh, we're used to dust clouds drifting by. It happens every single summer when the trade winds increase. They start to take more sand off of the Sahara Desert in, uh, in Africa. And by the way, a lot of the soil in South Florida is actually of African descent, the soil and the nutrients. If it wasn't for the nutrients, it wouldn't be as much plant life and, and coral would have a hard time growing, believe it or not. With all that said, this is the monster of all dust storms. I've never seen a dust storm this big in my, uh, in my career. They say that it's probably the biggest we've had in 50 years. And yes, it's headed towards Texas, uh, where we have a high incidence, by the way, of COVID-19. And being that COVID-19 and pollutants both attack the lungs, we're concerned about higher death rates. Harvard put out a study that people that have, that have, um, you know, that are exposed to more pollution have higher death rates and higher hospitalization rates from COVID-19. And it's not just going to be heading into Texas and Louisiana. It's going to be headed towards Atlanta, Birmingham, you know, Washington, D.C. Wow. Uh, as we head towards the early part of next week. Yeah. How does this thing dissipate? How does it travel all the way across the ocean like that? Like what would take, well, what would it take to dissipate? 
Uh, well, they usually do dissipate once they get about to this area, about to the about to the Gulf of Mexico. They start to kind of, or in the Caribbean, they start to dissipate, um, dilute and dissipate. Mm-hmm. Uh, what would it take? Um, we're going to need uh, weather systems to kind of crash into it, cold fronts to crash into it, different types of weather systems to kind of break it apart. Um, but yeah, this has been an extremely resilient um, and, and you know very concrete uh, dust storm that's been rolling through the Caribbean. And, um, yeah, it shows no signs of weakening very much until uh, maybe next Sunday, Monday, when it starts to move off the East Coast. So, you know, it's just such that the wind patterns uh, have been able to keep it together this whole time. Um, And that it was really monstrous when it exited Africa in the first place. Fascinating stuff. Listen, Jeff, thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. My pleasure. This is Mornings with Simi. Uh, We're going to talk about what Vancouver City Council has done, Uh, a big change from just a couple of weeks ago. Our Nikki Reitmeyer is with us now for more on this. Good morning, Nikki. Good morning, Simi. Yeah, a real about face on this, hey? Yeah. Because we heard that a motion was going to be put forth before Vancouver City Council about whether or not people would be able to drink in some parks. And this motion was put forward by Councillor Fry, Councillor Weeb. And it was shut down. They said, no, no, we're not going to go ahead with it. And they did that because it ended in a split vote, but it uh, it fell short of having the majority that it needed to go through. So, right. And then they got a lot of criticism for doing yeah. that because like North Vancouver had decided to go along with this and people were like, come on, city of Vancouver. Exactly. So yesterday, another motion was put hmm. through, this time by Councillor Lisa Dominato, and that motion passed. So I thought, okay, what is going on here? I called up that counselor, Lisa Dominato, and I said to her, you know, what's the difference here? Because the other week it failed. This week it's passed. So same motion, basically. What's been the difference maker here? Yeah, well, well, since that last vote, I heard from a range of the public about a number of things. Uh, One was, listen, let adults be adults, uh, you know, be responsible. But I also heard from small businesses in particular and they've been the hardest hit through the pandemic and that this could actually support them. And then thirdly, the issue of equity is that we have people who uh, live in rentals and condos. They don't have access to private space. And so um, Dr. Henry is encouraging people to you know, be outdoors, physically distanced, and that it supports that to be able to connect socially. I'm curious about the businesses, because I would have thought that a restaurant wouldn't want to encourage people to drink in a park. They'd want to encourage people to come inside and drink in their restaurant instead. But you actually heard from businesses who support this. Yes, in fact, because they're not at full capacity. Some of them, they have to have physical distance. They have to respect the distancing requirements. And even with the additional temporary patios, they can't have as many customers as they did previously. And so many of them have taken advantage of the relaxed liquor laws and allowing them to do off sales. And so you've got a lot of eateries who uh, would be quite happy to sell you, uh, you know, takeaway meal and a bottle of wine or a couple of beers. And uh, you could take it to a nearby plaza because there's only so much space in those patios on sidewalks and in indoors as well. Right. So my final question for you is, where do we go from here? When will this be allowed and where will this be allowed? When do we find out that information? Yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful it'll be in the next few weeks. The motion gave direction to come back ASAP uh, with recommended uh, locations in the city. And so I'm hopeful that staff will take that away. I think they've also heard that, heard that there's public support for this. They have to bring a bylaw to council for approval that would set out 
here the specific designated locations, here are the hours. This is you know broadly how it would work. But I'm hopeful they can turn that around fairly quickly in response to the public appetite for this. All right, that's Vancouver City Councilor Lisa Dominato. It sure seems to me, Nikki, that what she's saying there is that she they heard loud and clear from people going, What are you doing? Yeah, they heard loud and clear from several different groups of people saying, <laughs> uh, we want this. So I am glad to see that they've done an about face on this, that they actually responded to what the public wanted. And if you want to hear a more in-depth conversation between Councillor Dominato and host Jody Vance, tune in at 945. They're really going to delve into this in-depth, this whole okay. motion, and talk a bit more about the public drinking that's now going to be allowed in some Vancouver spaces. All right, stay tuned for more on that. Thanks, Nikki. Thanks, Amy. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, Global News investigative reporter Sam Cooper is out with another great story this morning. This one talks about how Canada is an attractive target for interference by China. What does that mean? What kind of interference? Well, Sam Cooper joins us now to talk more about this. Good morning, Sam. Good morning, Simi. What kind of interference are we talking about here? We're talking about a broad interference that is uh, enacted through uh, the United Front Network, which we've been talking about uh, with with your listeners. This is China, the Chinese Communist Party's uh, network that uses influence and espionage. And uh, Canada really has been a permissive target, CISA says. And it's all about the money. Uh, what they what China does is they target uh, elite leaders and institutions the experts told us they offer uh, sweet business deals. Really, they offer access to China's markets, but then they weaponize the trade because once you're trading with them, the experts say they can compel you in a foreign country to uh, to really advocate for China's policy. So we're talking about uh, cases such as the Mun Wanzhou Huawei extradition case. The experts tell us we could be listening to Canadians advocating for China's policy and there may be hidden reasons for it. Uh, the end result is uh, Canada's democratic values and institutions are, are being under attack, really, with uh, China's big pocketbook and this United Front interference strategy. So if this is coming from CSIS, like, what's being done about this? That was a, really the, the interesting finding of our report, is that we talked to experts, we, we looked at reports internationally, and in Canada, a parliamentary committee found that CSIS has been investigating and strongly warning about China's interference, especially for years. But Canada really hasn't acted, especially, uh, you know, in comparison with countries such as Australia and United States, which have strong laws, strong countermeasures against interference. Canada doesn't have those laws. So the experts say uh, we we likely are experiencing large scale interference and corruption, but we don't have the transparency laws to, to find out if it's occurring and to prosecute it. And so this committee pointed to some very tough uh, legal changes in Australia. People could get up to 10 to 20 years if they're found to be secretly acting for foreign governments and receiving benefits. Uh, but uh, at this point, Canada hasn't acted with su- such tough measures. Right. Australia has found itself in a very similar situation, as you pointed out there, and, and they have reacted differently, but they are also paying a price for that, are they not? Absolutely. Uh, you know, as we see in the case of Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor, it's becoming very clear that when uh, Western democracies speak up, stand up to China's interference, uh, it's very likely that uh 
a, a very strong measure will be taken against you. We just heard this week that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was essentially told to stop making irresponsible remarks when he made the, uh, the common observation that, that China yeah. had used the Mun Wanzhou case to put two Canadians in jail. We've seen the NBA uh, really had its business in China threatened and an, uh, an executive was uh, targeted for firing simply because that executive tweeted some support for Hong Kong. So standing up, absolutely, there, there's going to be some bruises if Canada stands up uh, with its allies. There's no doubt about that. So where do we go from here? Like this report, does it resonate with any politicians? Do you see anything changing? At this point, I can say that in Ottawa, certainly there's a debate. It's, it, it, it's more of a behind-the-scenes debate right now. But what I'm hearing in Ottawa is there's a growing I would say it's not quite a consensus yet, but strong voices within government are really, to put it bluntly, saying enough is enough with regards to China's interference. Canada needs to look at the legal changes that this parliamentary uh, intelligence committee has suggested. We, We probably do need to follow Australia's example. Some people in Ottawa are saying that the question right now is this report is in front of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's government. The ball is in their court. Mm -hmm. Will they look at tough changes or not? Um, Well, maybe that brings us full circle to the question. uh, Has anyone been in Canada's government been influenced or or under influenced? I think we're going to have more debates about those issues, certainly in the in the coming uh, weeks and months. I think we are, too. Sam, thank you. Thanks, Simi. Sam Cooper, Global News investigative reporter. You can read his latest piece online at globalnews.ca. And, of course, uh, we'll be following up uh, when we hear more about the results of this. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, the pandemic has raised no shortage of questions when it comes to housing. There's lots of people who have been waiting to either buy or maybe sell since the outbreak began. Wondering if this summer will bring more certainty for people. I've noticed a few more for sale signs in my neighborhood for sure. A couple things have actually sold too. But there's also renters who might be looking to change locations. You know, the rent is coming down in some places too. So is this the right time to move? And what about homeowners who might have seen some of the equity go down in their nest eggs? There's that going to go up again. So all sorts of questions about housing. Now, as we've been hearing, we're going to be entering a BC's Phase 3 reopening. And by the way, if you just Google the words Phase 3 BC, uh, the government website comes up where you can go through the list of what that actually means, you know, how it impacts you. And just in time for all of this, the Housing Market Outlook was released yesterday by Canada Housing and Mortgage Corporation. So to discuss what the future may hold for the housing market in Phase 3, we are joined now by real estate market analyst Dane Idle. Dane, thanks so much for being here. My pleasure, Simi. Thanks for having me back. What did you find particularly interesting in that outlook? Yeah, uh, a, a number of things, actually. Uh, so first of all, they, they, they call for Toronto, which in February was very near all-time highs to have a quicker recovery than Vancouver. I would disagree with that. Um, Greater Toronto area has just recently created a double top in its pricing chart and a double bottom in its inventory. Okay, what does that mean? <laughs> so, whoa, whoa, you got to so, translate that for us. What does that mean, yeah, double top, double exactly. bottom? <laughs> so a double top initially created in Toronto uh, was uh, in April of 2017 at a $920,000 sale price. In February, we saw 910. So that signals that that's the top of the market that Toronto will see for the near-term future. It tried to go higher and just could not on its own volition. Now that we're into troubling times, what we also notice is that the inventory has double bottomed. 
So again, in 2017, we saw only 4,600 active listings across all the greater Toronto area. Recently, in 2020, we saw that again. That number's on the rise. What's interesting about that, <laughs> it has a long way to go. We're going to see a number of active listings across greater Toronto area by 2022 above 20,000. So there is a, a longer-term or a downtrend that we're calling for Toronto than what CMHC is. And for Greater Vancouver, um, we actually see the bottom coming into 2021. And that's something that we did explain in 2017 when we initially were the first company to call the market top here in Greater Vancouver. We did forecast this market to be an abnormally long market cycle. Now, what's interesting even about that 2021 figure, there are 20 markets that make up Greater Vancouver. Of those 20 markets, only four are really owner-occupied investable currently. And what we mean by that is, those markets inside of Greater Vancouver are in the bottom area of their market threshold. So they're down 30%, 25%. And of course, we're going to see some more losses coming up, but not to the extent of the other 16 markets in Greater Vancouver. Right, but Those some, markets are still coming down. Some 20, stuff 50%. is still selling, though, right? That's, that's, I guess Absolutely. that's what you mean here, too. It's like when I see stuff in my neighborhood selling, and some of it selling like in a day or two, makes right. me think that we, as you point out, we have reached that bottom there. We found what both buyers and sellers think is an acceptable price. Yeah, uh, in some areas you will find that. And what's interesting about that, you're finding it right now, and I'll, and I'll say that probably for the next quarter, you'll see another period of strength, just like what we saw in 2019 after stress test mitigation. But going into the winter months, what, what will be interesting for me to see mm-hmm. is we've kind of missed out on this 2020 spring-summer inventory rise that usually takes place during seasonal factors. So we'll see if that inventory continues to increase during low seasonal factors of the winter. Um, but definitely by 2021, we will see that increased inventory across really all markets, and that's where you will find your bottoms for the stronger markets. They'll be placed earlier into 2021, and the other markets will find their bottoms later into 2021, some markets even into 2022. So, for okay. example, there are some markets that are down 35 40%. Those are investables. The markets that came down 20% but have risen back up to only 6% off their peak, which there are some markets in Greater Vancouver, those would be the markets that you're definitely selling into and not purchasing into. Okay, so you said earlier that, uh, you know, Canada Mortgage and Housing thinks Toronto's going to recover faster. You disagree. Why do you disagree? Do you think Vancouver's going to recover faster? Absolutely. So first of all, uh, again, uh, Toronto just comes off its its near all-time highs in February, which is interesting because Vancouver was at 1.7 in February as well, and 1.830 was the high of the detached market. What was odd about the Vancouver data is that came off the bottom from February 2019 at 1.48. So uh, essentially, Vancouver rose $200,000 uh, while, Van- while Toronto was very much near the top. So Vancouver has kind of already searched out this pricing cycle, this range. And once we do test the bottom, coming back up should be fairly rapid since we have spent such a prolonged period of time since basically 2016 when this market start- cycle started. And, and as we work our way back up, we're kind of forecasting by 2023, uh, 2024 is when prices will be back up near all the all-time highs in the detached market, the condo market does lag an extra year. Right. What's remarkable about all this, um, Dane, is that over the last couple of years, we heard a lot of very down scenarios for the greater Vancouver real estate market. But in the end, I think anyway, it has proven to be more resilient than we realized. Uh, Yes and no. Uh, It it depends on, uh, again, if you're using the HPI, which is the house price index, that is a lagging indicator, um, and, and what we use here is average sale prices, which is a truer indicator. And, and, and truthfully, they are down 15% from 
from the all-time highs. So, yeah, but the all-time uh, highs were really unreasonable in a lot of cases. <laughs> yes and no. Uh, to a personal standpoint, I would agree with you, but when the market's willing to continuously pay five or six times around $1.830 million, that, that does show you true market value. It wasn't even a quick spike like Toronto was, and it took a number of years for it to have a double top. Vancouver was very peaky very early um, for 2017 and 2018, and since then we have been falling. And that's something that has been debated. But if you look at the actual sales uh, that have been taking place over the past five years, you look at the average sale prices for the whole, uh, whole years over the past five years, everything has been trending lower. Um, and, I, and I can give you examples of the accepted offers in May and the sales numbers in May that everybody were toting that were so great compared to April. Mm-hmm. But just because you got off the mat doesn't mean you win the fight, right? It's a, it's a good sign. The market has a pulse, but it's not a very strong one. So just over the, since 2015, the accepted offers in the month of uh, May came from 1,800 in 2015, again, 1,800 in 2016, 1,500 in 2017, 871 in 2018, 839 in 2019, and we just hit 525. So you can see the trend is lower, you know, for sales and the sale price trend is lower. So overall, we are going lower until we do find the market bottom. Right. We do have a pandemic here too, right, to factor into all of that. But listen, Dane, thank you so much for your time on this. That was fascinating. No problem, Simi. Thank you again. That's Dane Idle, founder of Idle Insights, a real estate market analyst. Yes, we are in some interesting times here right across the board. Housing market, no exception. Uh, the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation says Toronto is going to rebound faster. Dane, as you heard there, disagrees. What's going on with real estate in your neighborhood? What have you noticed? I have a house a couple doors down from me that went for sale about, oh, a couple months ago in the middle of the pandemic, really, at a price that I looked at and thought, they're crazy if they think they're going to get that for that house. Uh, they did just about get that price for the house. It has now sold. I was surprised to see that. But what's happening in your neighborhood? Email me, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. How do you feel about your property tax bill if you have one? Have you ever looked at that bill and thought, hmm, that looks pretty reasonable. I could probably pay more. Yeah, I'm guessing that is not a thought that you have had. And yet, according to one Surrey City Councillor, constituents want to pay more in taxes. It was Councillor Allison Patton, and she was having a discussion about the new Surrey Police Force on the Linda Steele Show yesterday. Here's what she said. When are Surrey taxpayers going to get like an update, some transparency on how much this transition is actually going to cost, whether they you know approve of it or not? Yeah. Now I don't know the exact when of that, but the thing is, um, we were doing a presentation um, in a meeting recently, over overviewing where Surrey sits in taxes paid and. I think we're in the bottom five, and and some of our citizens complain about that, saying we'd like to pay more. Now, they may not want to pay it in a certain area or not, but it's interesting that for such a large city as we are, that our taxes are so, you know, minuscule. And so in comparison, I'm talking about in comparison. For each one individual, it may be too much. Well, I'll tell you what, you've got to be the only municipality where your uh, citizens are saying, I want to pay more taxes. (laughs) Yes, we are. We might. Well, it's gotten emails, and it's shocking. And wow. I guess for me, I mean, this year I, I'm, and and this may sound juvenile, but 
I'm excited to pay my taxes because it, it's um, I moved to Surrey, so I get to pay taxes in Surrey this year, other than my business taxes I've paid for many years. So I might be the only person excited to pay their taxes. Wow. Okay. Well, you're, you're a better woman than me because I'm not excited <laughs> to pay mine. Minuscule. That's what Councillor Allison Patton had to say. Now, does that seem odd to you? Because it sure did to me. Alison Patton is a member of the Safe Surrey Coalition, a reliable ally of Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum, who has adamantly refused to admit that the cost of the Surrey Police Department might cause higher taxes. I mean, this was during the election campaign. This was after the election. Every time this has been brought up to him, and I have brought it up to him myself quite a few times, he has absolutely refused to consider that he might have to raise taxes, even though I think for a lot of people it was apparent from day one that in order to properly fund and pay for this thing, taxes were going to have to be increased. But people saying that they wanted to be taxed more, it's unusual that his ally would say that. So given his very public stand on this, why would someone in his party, his ally, open this door? What's going on here? What does this mean for the people of Surrey? And by the way, people of Surrey, feel free to weigh in. I'd love to know if you've ever told a politician that you think your taxes are minuscule in Surrey. You can email me, simi at cknw.com. But let's weigh in on this now with the help of our next guest. We've got Brenda Locke, also a Surrey City Councillor. Mike Starchuk is with us, former Surrey City Councillor and retired Surrey firefighter. Thanks to both of you for being here. Thank you, Simi. Good morning. Good morning. Brenda, I'm going to start with you here. What did you think when you heard that? Um, I have never, ever heard our taxpayers say they want to pay more. I was uh, actually quite astounded that coming from uh, Councillor Patton, they have been adamant uh, about not moving the taxes beyond the consumer price tax price index. So I was really, really astounded she would say that. it's certainly not what I ever hear from the taxpayer in Surrey. Mike, where do you think this is coming from? What's going on here? I wish I knew. I mean, this is the, the, the ABCs that I always talk about. It's absurd, it's bizarre, and it's crazy. Uh, it's like going to a dentist and saying, instead of doing a filling, just pull all my teeth. It, it's, not, it's not real. Um, and to say that you just, you, know, you just saw these numbers, is, um, it's kind of disheartening because... Uh, as a councillor, as, as Councillor Locke will attest to, you know, year after year, they're given the the data that shows where Surrey sits in the scale. And Surrey's been, you know, either the, the lowest, the second lowest, or the third lowest in Metro Vancouver, and West Vancouver continues to be the highest paying. And I don't know of anybody that says, I want to be number one in this in this field. Right. But let, going back to the election and talking about, you know, funding a new police force, uh, there's been talk for the last couple of years that, listen, if Surrey's going to do this, you're going to have to increase taxes. Could this be some kind of trial balloon, Councillor Locke? Uh, it, it could be, but, you know, I certainly um, come back to the fact that I have talked about that with both mayor and councillors before. They have been adamant there will be no change in the tax rates for for the residents of Surrey. So the, this is really an outrageous statement by uh, by Councillor Patton. What about you, Mike? What do you think? Well, I mean, if you go back to the election, uh, and Council Locke can attest to this, uh, the Mayor McCallum 
had said it's only going to cost a little bit more, and then it was 5%, mm-hmm. then it was 10%, and it was 15%. And, you know, and, and now I hear from somebody that know that, that our taxes are going to go up 6.6%. Uh, it's, it doesn't, it's not representative of the CPI or COLA. Uh, it's it's just a pet project. And, you know, we're going through this pandemic. We're going through a time when we don't know whether or not the citizens of Surrey are going to be able to pay their taxes or whether or not they're going to be able to pay their grocery bill. And and now you've got this ginormous uh, bill that's coming forward for a municipal police uh, department. And you have to ask yourself a question, you know, is it time now to, to switch over or is it time now to tighten up your purse strings and, uh, and have those expenses that need to be paid for the city of Surrey paid? Right. But isn't this also a very critical time because, um, you know, with all this thing that's going on with the pandemic, Surrey's keeping their recreational facilities closed. And it sounds like the mayor said until September. Councillor Locke, I mean, if you're a taxpayer, if you're living in Surrey, that's a tough pill to swallow. You know, that's exactly what we're hearing from the taxpayer every day, Simi. We're hearing they're upset, they're angry. Um, never have I seen Surrey uh, rise up like it is right now. They want the police transition to stop, the funding going back into uh, resources like those ones you just talked about, the recreational facilities, and keep the um, keep those open for residents. The library, closing the library, uh, people are very upset about that. So uh, this makes absolutely no sense. Every other council, every other order of government is looking at how they deal with their finances now, especially uh, due to COVID. And, and we should be too, but we're not. We're just pushing ahead on this, um, I, I don't know, this magical police force that I, I can't really foresee happening. Now, Mike, what do you think? Like for residents of Surrey at this point, would they rather have their libraries open or would they rather push ahead with the Surrey police force? Oh, it, it's, uh, it's hands down. People are talking about uh, this this budget that's there, and, and what we've just seen recently is the, is the cancellation of projects. We've seen the cancellation of parks. We've seen the cancellation of, of of everything that you can possibly see in the next five years for a police department that's really not proven. There's been no data that's come forward, and I'm all for spending money if it makes the place safer. But so far, all we get is it's going to be better because I told you it's going to be better. So, Councillor Locke, then, do you expect to potentially in the next few months maybe hear more about an increase in taxes? Uh, well, I think we're reviewing that all the all the time right now because because of the impact of COVID. We know that in Surrey it's about a $42 million hit to our budget right now, but uh, we don't know as this uh, progresses what that's going to look like in the future. So we have to be um, we have to be pretty pretty diligent and and monitoring our uh, our budgets all the way uh, through to the end of this year for sure. Um, but uh, yeah, I think it's a it's a huge issue, and I think that the taxpayer. I can tell you, Councillor Patton talked about all these letters or emails or people's comments about wanting to increase taxes. Not a one. I haven't had one. All right. Thank you very much to both of you for being with us. Thank you, Simi. Thank you. Thanks, Simi. That's Brenda Locke, Surrey City Councillor. Mike Starchuk, former Surrey City Councillor, retired Surrey firefighter. All right, Surrey residents, if any of you ever said to one of your councillors, my property taxes are too low, 
I, I would appreciate paying more. Not surprised to see the emails flooding in and calls to our buzz line in regards to the Surrey story that we were just talking about. That yesterday on the Linda Steele show, Councillor Allison Patton said that, you know, she hears from people all the time that they think Surrey taxes are so low that they, they would love to pay more. Of course, we had had the reaction from Councillor Brenda Locke and former Councillor Mike Starchuk, who said nobody has ever said that to them. But it did make me wonder. What the heck is really going on here? Why would a counselor float some kind of trial balloon like that? Now, upon hearing that, we had a caller to our buzz line that said this. That counselor lies like Donald Trump. <laughs> Comedy at this hour of the morning. Uh, you can weigh in with your thoughts. You can email me, Simi, at cknw.com. I, I can't read a lot of the emails that I have gotten on this, even though I've got about a dozen, because let's just say Surrey residents are very fired up about this, and they're using words and language that I can't put on the radio at this point. But yeah, let me hear it. Simi at cknw.com. I still do like to hear the reaction from people on this. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, if you're one of the many, many people who originally was forced to work from home because of the COVID-19 pandemic, how are you feeling about that now, months later? It came with its own set of complications, but there are many companies out there that are thinking about how to gradually bring those employees back to the actual workspace. Are you ready to do that? Well, there's a new poll out from Insights West on this today. So to find out more about that, we're joined now by the president of Insights West, Steve Mossop. Hi, Steve. Good morning, Simi. How are people feeling about this? Do they want to go back to work? Well, I was a bit surprised. I thought after months and months of uh, social distancing and isolation that people would be more enthusiastic. But we found that really only about 20% of us are feeling very comfortable about going back to the office. And the rest have varying degrees of uh, uncertainty. Okay. Is there anybody, like what was the number for the people who just want to stay home permanently? Well, that was a shocker as well that 19% of us say I'd work at home forever if they, if they had the choice. Really? So what are the concerns then for the people who are reluctant to actually head back into the workplace? What are they worried about? They're really worried about the, the problem of physical distancing and confined spaces, and particularly their own workstation. So about two-thirds say that that is a significant concern. Uh, and majority as well, the same number, actually 67%, are concerned about the common spaces like kitchens, hallways, bathrooms. Uh, but the largest concern is really the prospect of potentially catching COVID-19 from a coworker. About 80% feel that way. Hmm. And is there a breakdown on gender on this? Not so much gender, but there is on age. The older the respondent, the much more concerned they are. And that probably makes sense, right? When you look at the, you know, the potential uh, for serious complications or even death from COVID, it, it really skyrockets as, as people are older. So that shows, I think that tells us, though, that people are still taking this very seriously. We see a lot of people out and about, but it sounds like when it comes to work, they're very cautious. And we've seen that in most of our polls. There is an overall abundance of caution on every aspect. People were reluctant to go to restaurants. They still are. They're reluctant to go back to the gym. There is a sense in there about three or four polls ago, I think we talked about this, where people were feeling like we were opening too quickly. Yeah. So the same theme applies here. And we have... You know, it, it, the people, there's about 40% of the population that are working from home right now in British Columbia. And uh, when we asked them, if you had a choice, when you'd ideally like to go back, only one in 10 say now. Uh, and, really? and, you know, there is that, yeah, one in, about 13% say now, be comfortable going back now. Another 18% say September. So that's still a, a, a really a, a small minority of people. And then you look at, well, what's the ideal time frame? 
there's 25% of us who say, I don't want to go back until there's a vaccine. And the 19% who say, never, I actually like the routine and it's going well for me. Yeah, so that is some interesting stuff there. What about the confidence in their employers? Like, do they feel, are companies doing enough, the employees think? They're doing a pretty good job. It's about split down the middle. About 44% are concerned about their company not taking enough precautions, which means the balance is really feeling like they're doing an okay job in communication in outlining their safety measures and cleanliness measures. So that part, we can't really blame employers. It's really that overall sentiment of reluctance to get back to life as normal as we used to know it. So was there any consensus then, Steve, on when people feel like it's a good time? Like, are they want to wait until, what, the new year to do this? Uh, even so, like, there's about 10% who say January 2021. There's another 10% who say that when there's zero cases of COVID, but really, those two numbers, the 25% who say, I'm not going back to a vaccine or if I can avoid it, I wouldn't go back. And that 20% who say never, that was, those are big numbers. And you think of the implications for everything from commercial real estate to the vitality of the downtown core uh, to even, uh, you know, employers and how they deal with liability issues. I mean, the, the implications, I think, are enormous going forward. And it's not, this is not a you know, next quarter problem. This is like in the next year or two or even longer. That's one of the things that we've heard a lot about, isn't it? About how this could reshape everything about the the corporate workplace. Absolutely. And, you know, you think of uh, on an average year, about 20% of companies are renewing their lease. So if you're a company such as ourselves, we were faced with the same prospect just a, a few short months ago at the beginning of March. Are we renewing our lease or not? And we chose not to. Uh, imagine all the companies making those choices now. Will they renew? And if they do, what terms and what size of office space will they will they have going forward? I think it's going to shake up the industry quite a bit. Sure sounds like it. Steve, thank you. Thank you very much. That's Steve Mossett, president of Insights West. He has been asking people who are working from home because of the pandemic, how do you feel about that? Are you ready to go back to the workplace? And his poll shows that 20% feel very comfortable about going back to the workplace if given a choice 31% say they'd go back to work now or, you know, in September. But about 20% said they would rather keep working from home permanently. And about three quarters of them say that their biggest fear is catching COVID-19, not from a fellow employee necessarily, but a customer who might come into their workplace. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.